This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. It's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of Queensland's most successful and best respected trainers. Barry Baldwin is now 76 years old and he's slowly cut back on numbers in recent years, but he's still very keen and he's still fiercely competitive. His racing life started as an apprentice jockey in Roma, but that was very short-lived. By age 18, he couldn't ride under 57 kilos. He gave racing away for a short time and worked on the main roads department as a surveyor's assistant, and during that time his weight soared to 10 stone and that was the end of his riding career. He was missing the horses and he decided to work for a Roma trainer called Randall Ferrier until he was old enough to apply for his own licence. He trained successfully out of Roma for 16 years before making the move to Toowoomba in 1981. He had three years on the downs and then bit the bullet and headed for Brisbane. Barry thinks his career win tally is getting close to 2,500. He has two Brisbane trainers premierships under his belt and a Group 1 Stradbroke handicap with the Bonnie Mare La Montagna. He also trained successfully in Macau for four and a half years. So you can see that Barry Baldwin has crammed plenty into his 76 years. Great to talk to you on the podcast, Barry. Thanks for your time. Thanks, mate. Um, I think it was 13 years in Toowoomba, um, um, and that was about the only thing that uh, I would have to say was uh, incorrect. Everything else there was very much to the point. How long in Toowoomba, Barry? 13 years. Oh, boy, I didn't realise you were there that long. Well, you're not long over major hip surgery, and that slowed you up for a little bit. How are you travelling currently? Oh, great, great. I can actually walk and without any pain, and uh, it's good. So I, uh, it makes life a lot easier. Uh, as you're getting older, you do slow down a bit, but I um, seem to think I've got another spring in my step at the moment. <laughs> That's good. Well, that wonderful winning run recently by the Candy Man must have been a terrific tonic during your rehabilitation. Now, not many horses that- win seven straight, Barry, this bloke went from a maiden last December to the Group 3 Premier's Cup in one go. It's quite amazing, really. It was, really. And, and uh, you know, uh, we've well documented his uh, trouble where he spent 12 months in rehabilitation after a, a nine-hour operation, which worked out more than that, really, and uh, an operation that, uh, that most vets thought they would never have survived. Mm. So... All of that plus the 12 months, which might have helped him in the long term, but it didn't definitely didn't help him health-wise. No. Now, Barry, just talking about that accident that he had, it was a stable accident, and he shattered his jaw, and it was a mess. He, he, he was in a hell of a state, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He, his bottom jaw was completely shattered. Uh, we, we sent him up to um, Gatton University immediately. He was up there within hours. Uh, they rang me and said, um, I don't think this horse, um, you know, uh, we can do much for him, but we can try one thing, but it'll cost um, about $25,000. Mm. I said, well, he's not insured. And they said, well, you know, if you want to save him, I said, well, I think he's a pretty good horse, and, and, and if we can do everything we can to save him, and the owners agreed. Um, 
I rang them and, and within a matter of hours, it was on the operating table. Mm-hmm. Well, one of his owners is Lucky Pippos, a brother of George Pippos, who part-owned the Great Gun Sind. George died about 10 years ago. He left the colours to his brother and to a bloke of my generation, Barry, to watch that horse, the Candy Man, who's a grey, carrying the Gunsin colours, gives me goosebumps. Yes, it does. And, and there's quite a few people um, about our age uh, that appreciated that. And uh, other trainers and, and a few people were really uh, taken by the fact. And in one of these starts, he actually wore the original colours that Gunsin had. They had the old cloth buttons and everything. Uh, but they didn't stand up the wear and tear too much. No, no. Now, in the second of those seven straight wins, he stood in the gates at the Sunshine Coast. He missed the kick by a hell of a long way. It must have been ten lengths. He still won. So you had a bit of work to do after that race. Yeah, he did. He, he stood in the uh, in the gates and, he, and it was an enormous win and, and Damien Brown rated that day. And... He come back and just said to me, <clears throat> this horse could win the Sunshine Coast Cup, which we never ever got to. But he said he um, was um, apologetic that he missed the start. But the first, the second thing he said to me, this horse can win the Sunshine Coast Cup. Mm. Well, as you know, Damien retired not long after. Mm. Now, Barry, uh, following his sequence of seven wins, he failed in the Brisbane Cup. Had he had enough by then? Had he gone over the top? See, most like he had enough, um, but Michael, Carl and I uh, sort of went back into it and, and um, we feel that we shouldn't have uh, went forward on him. We should have went back and rode him for luck. Um, but the fact that he went forward, he's caught wide, yeah. uh, had a tough run. Um, Michael said he still wanted to try the last bit. Michael just eased him down when he was well beaten. Mm. Um so the margin wasn't quite as uh, uh, unflattering as it should have been. Uh, well, unflattering anyhow. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't quite so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, he he pulled up well. He uh, worked to keep going, but we thought he'd done what we asked him to do, and we decided to give him the spell. Right, but it won't but be a very long spell. Near as bad as it looked. No, he won't be out for too long, will he? Uh, he comes in tomorrow, actually. Right. Right. Yep. You're thinking of a trip to Sydney, Barry, aren't you? It's in the back of your mind. Yes, we're thinking about giving him a start here and maybe going down for the Cameron Handicap mm. and then working his way up to um, uh, the uh, Epsom if he's um, good enough mm. and uh, or uh, the Rose Hill Cup, which is, I think it's a 2,000-metre quality race. Mm. The Cameron at Newcastle will be a lovely race for him, still on the fresh side. You'll love the Newcastle track. Yeah, I've won a couple of races at Newcastle. Badger has one that comes to mind. So, mm. so I've been fortunate enough to be down there before over the years. And when I was in Toowoomba, and, uh, and it's a lovely track, Newcastle. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take you right back. Your dad changed jobs a lot, and he carted little Barry all over Queensland as a kid. And I hear on the grapevine that you went to 22 schools. I did from the time I, time I was five to the time I was ten. I went to twenty-two schools. That's a world record. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you finally left school, your first job was with that iconic small goods business known as K.R. Darling Downs. 
which to this day you call the Bacon Factory. That's right. That's right. It was at um, Doughboy, um, just outside of Brisbane. Yep. And you were getting about seven quid a week. Yeah, I thought that was a fortune. <laughs> it was. It seemed a fortune when your next job came along. You loved horses so much you decided to go and work for a trainer called Jack Clayton and you dropped from seven quid to ten shillings a week. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. That was a shock to the system. <laughs> it sure was. And the work was, was um, long hours in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I always found Jack, Jack uh, Clayton a thorough gentleman and he placed me on to Albie Pratt. Yeah. And from Albie Pratt, I went a short stint at Mel Barnes, who was very helpful for the rest of my life, really. Yeah. Mel Barnes was a, a great help to me. Mm. And then I went apprentice to Gordon Franks, yeah. and then I was too heavy already, so they transferred me to Roma. And I went to Roma when I think I was 17. Yeah, and you went to a trainer and a character by the name of Joe Farnden. Now, we, well, I think we should... Establish a little bit of background about Joe Farnden, Barry. He's the only trainer you know of who's been disqualified for life twice. That's true. That's true. <laughs> How did that happen? Once in England. In England, um, yeah. As a teenager. Uh, he was also a World War One veteran. Yeah. Right. So that was the first time. I think that might have been in a point-to-point race. That's right. And it then was. years yeah. later in Queensland, what did he do? Years later, I think he came over to uh, um, Queensland and those days there was no record, so no one ever knew mm. that he'd been disqualified in uh, in England. Um, so he come across to um, to um, uh, Australia yeah. uh, and I think in just after the war, uh, sometime he got caught again at ringing in a horse. <laughs> So that was the second time, and he got a he got a Queen's pardon, I think. He got a Queen's pardon because he was a World War One uh, veteran. Um, he got a, que- a Queen's pardon. Mm. In, I think it was roughly about nineteen fifty four. Now, one day at a little place called Surat, at the races, Surat is south of Roma. You were riding on the card. In fact, I think you rode three or four winners early in the day. And then the unthinkable happened. He asked you to give one of his horses a quiet run, and you were horrified. Well, I was, because I wasn't real good at it, which proved to be the case. Um, and I was horrified, but I, I decided I'd do my best for him. What did you do? Um, well, coming around the home turn, uh, Barry Stein rode a horse in the race, and uh, Barry Stein said to me, well, you better do something, mate. Um and yeah, so I decided to kick my foot out of the stirrup iron um, and uh, hang around the horse and, and I thought, well, he won't win now, but he still did. He still won. <laughs> I was hanging around his neck and he still won. <laughs> so you came back to scale, head down, very embarrassed. Uh, yes, um, I did. I, and I sneaked in close to him and, and uh, the horse opened up at six to four on then got out to six to one at a country meeting, so you can realise that nearly everybody knew that he wasn't trying. Um, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be trying. Um, when I come back and I got in close to Mr. Farnden and I said, "Oh, sorry, boss, sorry, boss," and he said, "You're still on the 
uh, flaming thing, he said. Uh, I didn't use that word either. He said he's still on the flaming thing, yeah. which many thought I should have jumped off. He thought that's the least you could have done, jump off. <laughs> <laughs> he well, was going too fast. <laughs> your riding career was quickly over. You had a little stint with Randall Ferrier, and then you went to Brisbane to work for a prominent trainer called Tony Mazaglia. And I think that was a very good learning curve. And you also met one of your great mates, a lifelong mate in Tony Erhart. Yes, uh, Tony Erhart was actually best man at my wedding when I did get married. And uh, he was a, a great fellow. He always was a great fellow. Um, a little bit uh, wild in his young days, uh, but, but a real good fellow and a good rider too and a good horseman mm. as well as being a jockey. And not long retired, is he? I mean, he was still having an odd race ride, what, five years ago? Mate, he still, he still rides a, yeah, he still rides a horse track work occasionally, mm. you know, and um, he's about three, three and a half years younger than me. Yeah, I oh, know, he's an absolute marvel, A.U.Hart. Well, you finished up training in your own right at Roma, and you, you trained the program one day, I notice, in 1977. Five races, five winners. Yeah, I did, mate. I, I did, and and it was in those days it was a big thing. When I was over in the cow, I trained five winners a couple of times oh. um, in the, in the one in the one day. But mind you, I had twelve races. It was a bit different then, mm. um, and um, it was a bit a big thing in those days, and and it was something I was happy to do. Mm. Well, then the stint in Toowoomba, it was thirteen years. You tell me. Uh, longer than I thought it was, but you had a lot of luck on the downs and eventually it was time to move to Brisbane. But before that, I just wanted to ask you about the legendary Jim Atkins, who was the uncrowned king of Toowoomba, one of the great Australian trainers and a wonderful character, and I know you knew him well and respected him greatly. One of my prized traditions was a, a letter from Jim Atkins uh, when I was in Roma, and he wrote me a nice letter and he said, well, why don't you send, I used to send horses to him, sort of race them out there and send them to him and then he'd take them on to Brisbane and race. And uh, a lot of them were owned by Ned Nolan, uh, used to own Roman Downs. And he had a lot of success with these horses. Mm. Um, and uh, one of them went second in the Queen's and Oaks Indian line. Mm. And uh, and uh, he, um, he, he wrote me back a nice letter and said, why don't you come to... Um, to Toowoomba to train. Mm. He said, you're wasting your time out there. And he said, if anything I can do, I will help you. One of the nicest horses you trained before going to Toowoomba when you were operating out of Roma was Vale Kingdom. You won a lot of races with that horse. Yeah, we got horse of the year out there. And he, he won, I think it was eight straight or nine straight at one stage. Um, he went down to Toowoomba to uh, Norm McCullum, uh, and uh, went on to win a, um, a Queensland Cup and a Prime Minister's Cup. Mm. Well, you finally moved to Eagle Farm. I think you kicked off in the uh, the old Athel Strong stables originally. That's right. In 1994, that was done. Mm, right. Now, they've been demolished subsequently. They have. They have been demolished, yes. And... Um, I'm just going to add that, uh, you know, there's a, uh, a long history of horses from the strong, strong uh, stables. There's my father, Apple, and Daryl, and, and Neil, and those people. There was a long history of, uh, of horsemen there, too. Yeah. Well, your first premiership came along 
in the 1997-98 season. Uh, I think coming into the final day, there was very little between yourself, John Hawkes and Alan Bailey, but you just kept your nose in front. Yeah, I did. I did just keep my nose in front. It was um, another good day because it was quite competitive in those days. John had a, a, uh, John Hawkes had a large screen and Alan Bailey had many of the, the Gold Coast. We'll just pause there for a moment, Barry, to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back in a moment. The completion of the Great Southern Sale in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sales season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. Inglis ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at inglis.com.au. Our special guest is Queensland trainer Barry Baldwin. Well, right on top of that premiership win, you pulled one out of left field. You accepted an offer to train in Macau. Were you appointed as a club trainer then? Yes, that's, that's how it worked over there. The club would invite you to come, and then when you got there, uh, they'd uh, give you an assistant trainer, and the assistant trainer would um, would have some horses for you to start off with. In my case, my assistant trainer was uh, wasn't the real top one, and I only ended up with three horses. But we were lucky enough; we, we got the three horses, started off with them. And uh, I was lucky enough, the second start I, I had over there, one of 33 to one, and hadn't been placed for its ninth previous start. So, yeah. so that sort of started me off on the right foot. Yep. Well, to say you started with a bang is an understatement. You prepared a rush of winners. I think you got 100 winners in your first year in Macau. Yeah, in my first full year, I got 100 winners, uh, which I went over there in February finished that year and, and got a few winners. That's how I got a kick on. Mm. I had 60 horses in work. That's all you allowed overseas. Yeah. I think Hong Kong's still the same, and I think um, Singapore and Macau was at that stage. Once you had 60 horses, you had to either give a, uh, one away to another trainer or, or transfer one because uh, that's how it worked. And it's a good system. Now, you slowed up considerably in your second season in Macau, and there was a very good reason for that. And this was a, devot- a devastating experience that you had when one of your horses yeah, I, returned a positive swab. That's right, to a stopper, uh, to a, to a, a, a tranquilizer, um, ace prometheine, actually. Yep. Um, and um, to this day, I don't know how it happened because I was uh, unfortunate or fortunate enough to actually have backed the horse where he won, uh, so I wouldn't have been giving him anything. And there was a Supreme Court judge um, from Hong Kong. Um, he came forward and I backed the horse with him. And, uh, and then I put the money on together and he came forward and gave evidence on my behalf. Mm. I took a lie detector test. I've done many things. But when it came back to the inquiry, I went in there and I can remember quite clearly um, 
the chairman said, oh, we're convinced that you you did not um, do this. We're convinced that you are innocent. Uh, He said, you let it happen. You've got to wear it. Yep. uh, Yep. And that's it. I suppose it's a pretty, looking back at it, it's a pretty fair uh, way of doing it too, really. Mm. It was was your responsibility and you let it happen, which means I didn't head on your staff or do do something wrong. So um, I just had to cobble it. But the two months was very costly. Um, I had 60 horses in work then. They transferred them all over stables. I was lucky enough, um, I had a, one fellow, he said, oh, my horse is two, and I got them back. So I got 24 horses back, and only two months was up. Um, and uh, and he's still training there, Tommy Chain, and, and what a lovely man. Mm. Um, when I come back, I um, uh, had to pay off the fine, which in those days, we're talking about 2002, I think, um, in those days was... 350,000 Hong Kong, mm. which works out 65,000 Australia then. Mm. That was a nice smack so, in the mouth. Yeah, it was. Oh. It was. So I picked myself up like I've done most of my life and and um, got on and, and finished a nice career there. Uh, and I think I ended up training uh, just under 300 winners in, in the time or 200. 60 or something, mm. trying just to get the actual amount of winners because I trained 101 year. Um, so it ended up very good, and the prize money was great because when I went there uh, in 2000, um, the lowest race on the program was worth 18,000 Australian to the winner, mm. and the highest race every week was 60,000 Australian to the winner. So we're talking about 2000. And um, one, we're talking about 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. So it can show you how good the prize money was then. Mm-hmm. There was 1,100 horses in work at, um, at Macau then. Mm-hmm. I think there's only a few hundred now. Now, you started to work your horses a little differently to the local trainers. It was stinking hot over there most of the time. And uh, you treated it much like Queensland weather in the summertime. And you started to work your horses uh, quite differently. I did, I did. I did quite differently. The, the hot weather was there. Uh, the humidity was maybe a bit more than what I was used to being in Roma and Brisbane, but it was much the same. And um, I think for some reason they all believed you couldn't work them at all, which is really not the case. Uh, and anyhow, I was um, uh, having a drink one night and, and I just moved there and, and Brent Thompson was there and... Uh, I was, um, um, we often have a drink with Brent, and um, we're at the Hyatt actually. And, and I, Brent, Brent said to me, um, "Oh, Barry," he said, um, "What do you think?" I said, "Oh, I said I can't believe these horses. We have a sixteen hundred meter track. Um, I can't believe they just go out there, canter around the track, and come back in." I said, "I, I just don't think they get enough work." Mm. And Brent said, "If you think that," he said, "Why don't you do something about it?" Mm. Anyhow, and I took Brent's advice. He said, "Don't." Don't worry about it. He said, you cop a bit of criticism, but if you can cop that, he said, go ahead and do it. Mm. So in that was about after being there, about two months. So when I started doing that, I got more horses and won a lot of races. Mm. But it's like all good things. It comes to an end a bit because after a while, the Chinese uh, started to wake up mm. and uh, they started sending their horses two laps and giving them more work. Mm. So it, only, it was only an advantage just for a few months. Mm. Yeah, it's not as though you were sprinting them up 
too far, though. You, you started to work them a little bit longer, admittedly, but you were only really letting them slide up the last furlong or so, just to clean oh, the yeah, wind out. Oh, yeah, just three-quarter pace and let them sprint up the last furlong, which keeps them sharp. And, mm. and then you've got to realise most of the horses over there had leg problems. Yeah. I think that's helped me even now, uh, all the leg problems we had, how you learned how to hang it them or how you... Um, you know, you sort of um, had to suffer, but it's called such a thing, because uh, 70% of the horses you have have been in the system for a long time, uh, but the cow horses never got to a paddock. Um, so they were run through the mill. So you, if you could do something to break their boredom, and, and we used to go to the markets and get carrots and go around and give all the horses carrots. Well, mm. It took my wife a long time to teach the horses to eat it, but after a while, the horses become happier. They'd see somebody coming and they'd look out, their heads looking for a carrot and a yeah. bit of tension. Mm. And these horses that were sort of a bit stir-crazy started to um, uh, settle down a bit. And not all of them, but some of them did really respond. Yeah. You're the first to admit uh, that a large proportion of your success in Macau was attributable to the jockeys you were using throughout that four and a half years. Oh. You had Christoph Semyon there at one stage. Jimmy Byrne came over. Michael Carl came over. So did Danny Beasley. Christian Reith was there for a while. You had a, a great selection of writing talent. Yeah, I did. Uh, Gavin Duffy's another one that comes to mind straight away. Mm. Um, um, so, yeah, there, there was many, many good jockeys there. Um, uh, we had a few overseas jockeys come there and they only stayed for, for short periods. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a feast of good jockeys, really, but most of them uh, didn't like the way the racing was or the, or the fact that most of the horses, well, not most of the horses, but a lot of horses did have leg problems. Mm. And, um, and uh, so we sort of either liked Macau or moved on. Yep. When you arrived back in Brisbane after a four-and-a-half-year absence, you must have wondered how the hell you were going to pick up the threads. Now, a few friends and old clients quickly rallied around you and one of them gave you a yearling filly who was destined to change your life. She became known as La Montagna, winner of a Stradbroke handicap. Did she show it right from day one, Barry? Yes, she did. She did show something from day one. Um, <clears throat> we got her in the stables. Um, she responded... Um, to training, um, and Les Green, the, the um, quite a um, long-standing clocker in um, Eagle Farm, mm. he was one of the first ones that said to me, he said, geez, he said, that's a good filly. And he was possibly one of the first people, uh, apart from a couple of riders, Alan Russell was one that rode her early, and they were quite um, happy with the way she was going. She won a couple of two-year-old races. She won a three-year-old at Doombin. Uh, in fact, she won a couple of three-year-olds at Doombin. Now, next time back in, though, she really improved. She won the Bright Shadow Stakes. She ran second in a listed at Eagle Farm, a close-up fourth in the Silk Stocking. Then she won the Group 3 BTC Classic, eighth in the Doombin 10,000. I'll ask you in a moment were there any excuses there. She wasn't beaten far, just over four lengths, and then she won the Stradbroke. Go back to the Doombin 10,000, Barry. Any excuses in that? Yeah, Scotty, Scotty Galloway rode her there, and, and she was just unable to get a run. Um, she was um, 
uh, having trouble getting the run all the way down the straight. Um, it might have been a good thing she had an easy run, and so it was better for the straight break. But um, she had a um, <clears throat> uh, sort of a real, real good run. And one of the striped Henry Stewart come to me and said, well, your horse was the unlucky horse in, in the uh, 10,000. Mm-hmm. I remember Ron Duffy saying uh, before the race that he watched the replay and said she had a very easy run. He said, which will most likely will help her. He said it wasn't her fault. It was just a bad luck that she couldn't get a run. Yeah. And, um, and it turned out to be right. Now, she was ridden in her Stradbroke win by Craig Newitt, and that was a surprise riding engagement for your stable. It was. She only had the light weight, of course, and we had to get somebody to ride that weight. Uh, we uh, approached Craig Williams first, but he wanted to wait. And um, David Lang, um, the main owner of, um, of uh, La Montana, he was one of those people who likes to get things done. He's an old uh, um, QDC secretary, actually, and he liked to get everything done. So we, we engaged uh, Craig Newt some 10 days, 12 days before. He'd come up and rode her in a gallop, and he said, I'm glad I took the ride because he was quite impressed on the gallop on the Monday before the Stradboat. Yeah. Well, she didn't last much longer, unfortunately, uh, Barry. She only had, I think, four more runs. You brought her to Sydney. She ran second in the missile stakes at Rose Hill. Uh, then she had a good blow. Then she had three more runs and did very little. Uh, what happened there? Was she involved in the the EI scare? Yeah, when she ran second um, in an eleven hundred metre race at um, at um, Brisbane, in Sydney, yeah. it was a uh, group race. Um, it was a great run, and we were sort of getting very. Um, uh, um, excited about her, her next run, mm. and she got um, along with many other horses. She got EI. Oh, gosh. All right, so that was two thousand and seven. Yes, and she never, never ever recovered from the EI. She she become a uh, 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 used to try and bleed. We had a little bit of trouble with bleed at the bleeding a couple of times. Uh, we had to you know uh, rechange her training and. And, uh, yeah, she was just never the same horse. Well, La Montagna retired with a terrific record. 22 starts, seven wins, five placings, $1,081,000. And that leads me on to Ol Baggio, one of the best horses you've trained, beyond doubt. A good racehorse, but he was an arrogant pig, wasn't he, early in the piece? Oh, he was, he was a, yeah. Uh, my old friend, Tony, uh, early in the uh, he's come up and said, oh, I'll ride him. I think Darby McCarthy might have ridden him in his first trial at, at Eagle Farm. Yeah. But anyhow, uh, Tony said, I'll st- I used to run, try to run off the track. And Tony said, I'll fix him up. Um, so Tony came up and and uh, he said to me, he said, not many horses beat me. He said, but that blame thing did. <laughs> Tony said, I, <laughs> Tony actually gave up on him. Um, so we got a fellow called Paul Hamlin. Uh, he done a lot of work on him, and he was, he rode him uh, track work for, for a greater part of his career. Yeah. What things did he do, Barry? What were his bad habits? Um. Well, he um he wouldn't exactly bolt. He just they you know, just couldn't pull him up. <laughs> he'd uh. get on the track and he'd want to do something, and he'd run to the outside. He couldn't get his own way. Yeah. Um. One day he'd be good, and the next day he'd just take it and he said he'd want to bolt. 
and they they lock on the bit and they just couldn't pull him up. He one day one day probably them three laps the track only came to him, but they just couldn't pull him up. And he's that type of horse. He could be um, he could be cantankerous around the place. Yeah. Um, uh, but underneath it all, he was, he was a lovely horse to handle. Yeah. Uh, just didn't like people riding him. No, he must have been a hard mouthed old thing, was he? He was. He was. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he won a dozen races. Ten seconds, seven thirds, almost four hundred thousand. He did run second in a Stradbroke to all our mob. Didn't have a lot of luck. He did run second in a Queensland Guineas, and he won a stack of races in the metropolitan area in Brisbane. That takes me to Meg's ego, Barry. What a nice horse! Nine wins from forty-two starts, and looking at his record the other day and the jockeys that rode him, Mel Shoemaker. The legendary shoe won three races on Meg's ego. Yes, yes. Mel, Mel liked him and um, was uh, to ride him in the uh, one of the Stradbrokes that he started in. Uh, I think it was the day that they were in fourth. He was to ride him in that, and uh, Mel couldn't make the weight, so Craig Carmody was the late replacement. He ran a good fourth, and and of all horses, Rough Habit won the race. Yes. Arimathea was a nice horse, Barry. He was showing great promise and he, he just disappeared. Did he have problems? He had a lot of problems. He, uh, when he ran second in the Queensland Guineas to a horse of Clary's, I think a, a near of Clary's, he ran second to her. He chipped the bone in the knee. And then later on, he had a split in his, in his hoof, which never, ever got right. It stopped him from the crack in his hoop. He had a, uh, we had all core issues. We had all sorts of things on him. Yeah. And he, uh, a lot of times, was half lame. And he'd done a great job. He won a Magic Millions weight per age race. Uh, even back in 2000, that was worth 280000 of the winner. You know, the quarter crack is one of the great nightmares of all horse trainers. And it's interesting to note, not that I'm comparing... Um, Arimathea with the following two horses, but Farlap had a quarter crack and so did Carbine. Yes, yes, and, and Hallmark too, I think, if I remember reading something about that. Yeah, I think um, so. There's nothing worse, yeah. though, Barry, is there? There's just nothing worse. No, and, and, and it doesn't matter which way you, you, you or the many ways you try and rectify it, they still get a certain amount of pressure on it and it just cracks and it's very painful. Mm. One little horse from more recent times that I think deserves a special mention is Burdekin Blues. Uh, you had a great run with this little bloke. He only had 22 starts. He won half of them. He won 11 from 22, 678,000. He won a Group 3 at Doombin. He won a Group 2 at Rose Hill. He won a listed at Flemington. You carted him around a bit. Yeah, yeah, he, and he was a real speed horse. Uh, and um, and we went to the year themselves and bought him. Um, I think we only paid thirty eight thousand, or uh, might have been twenty eight thousand. We did. He's a quite a cheap buy, really, and he turned out a pretty good horse. And uh, the, he was by Sequalo, who was probably an underrated sire. He he could pop up with a handy one at any given time. He was in my stable when the just before the EI came, mm. and we sent him up to to. Um, Valley of Lagoons up near Ingham to have a spell um, a week before EI came. So he wasn't in the stable when EI came, which was a blessing. 
Well, you and Margaret have been married 46 years. You've got one daughter, Angela Marie, and you've got two lovely granddaughters and uh, plenty to occupy your spare time. As I mentioned in the intro, Barry, you're 76 years old. Uh, You're getting over that recent hip operation. In fact, I believe the operation has put about six lengths on you. Do you see <laughs> do you see yourself training into old age as Jim Atkins did? Yeah, I'd like to do that. Um, I think it's like the old cowboy movies. I'll die with your boots on. Um, you know, <laughs> I just like to. Uh, I'd like to um, uh, poke around. I think it keeps you younger. It keeps your mind active. Yeah. Um, it, you do know, slow down a bit. I'm not quite as good as I used to be handling horses, where I was fairly good at that. Um, but I lost a bit of that. But um, there's plenty of young people around to do the work. They can do it the way you want it. Well, I'll be keeping an eye out for you and the Candyman in Sydney in uh, not very long off, probably late August, early September. And uh, he's a horse who's captured a lot of attention, the Candyman. Even Sydney people were watching him with great interest when he was reeling off win after win. Just what the doctor ordered for you had put a bit of spring back in your step. He surely did. Barry, thanks for being on the podcast. Lovely to catch up. Thanks very much. And this podcast has been produced by Supernova Sound. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oaklands Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yearling sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.